Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The account of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt led by Moses has shaped the theology and community identity of both Jews and Christians across centuries, blossoming further in later scriptures and religious writings as well as in art and music. Join us as we speak with Joshua Coots about the book Let My People Go, the reception of exodus motifs in Jewish and Christian literature. This volume brings together an international group of scholars to explore the reuse of the Exodus narratives across a wide range of early Jewish and Christian literature, including the Apocrypha and the New Testament. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Joshua Coots is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Providence Theological Seminary. He completed a Ph.D. at the University of Edinburgh in 2016. His most recent publication, The Divine Name in the Gospel of John, was published in 2017 by Moore Seebeck. Joshua, welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thanks for having me. Now, though we've had you on the NBN before, let's go ahead and introduce you afresh. Would you tell us more about yourself and your scholarship? Sure. So I'm a teach New Testament at Providence Theological Seminary, which is in southern Manitoba, right in the middle of Canada. And my scholarly interests have kind of circled around a number of interrelated aspects. I'm really fascinated with the use of Scripture in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospels. So my interests have kind of uh, found themselves smack in the middle of the Gospel of John. I've done a lot of work on uh, Scripture in John. But uh, my problem is I'm interested in lots of other things. Uh, So I found myself uh, dipping into second and third century Christian reception of New Testament texts more recently and uh, issues to do with theological interpretation, their textuality, a lot of which come out of the the questions to do with how scripture gets used in the New Testament. So lots of interrelated things, but gospels, scripture, Jesus, uh, I'm in. We're looking at the volume called Let My People Go, The Reception of Exodus Motifs in Jewish and Christian Literature. Joshua, give us the story behind this book. How did it come together? Yeah, well, um, I came to know the, the editors, co-editors of the volume, Susan Doherty and, and Beata Kowalski, uh, who teach respectively in the UK and in Germany. Um, got to know them through a, a, a delightful seminar that's on the Old Testament in the New Testament happens annually in, in a Gladstone's library in Harden uh, in Wales. And um, so there is a kind of a shared interest there in reception of, of scripture. Um, they, they put this, um, this together, this proposal for the reception of Exodus motifs, and it brought together a team of scholars from largely Europe, uh, European scholars, not exclusively, but um, to, to explore the various ways in which Exodus motifs get uh, reflected in scripture, uh, in Second Temple Jewish texts. I think initially the vision for the volume was to go beyond that, but uh, it's ended up basically ending with the New Testament. We were going to have a, a conference uh, gathering the our sort of preliminary papers, and it was going to be in, in Germany in March of 2019. 
we all know what happened in that month. That was just a, like four days before I was going to fly is when the, the plug, plug was uh, pulled on that conference. So still hopes of us getting together uh, maybe this next year, uh, just to, you know, retrospectively look back on what we have accomplished. But of course, a lot of the impetus for that is, uh, is a little bit less when the book's already in print. So that was some of the impetus for um, uh, or some of the, the beginnings of, of the project. It, I suppose the volume is participating in what is uh, a relatively recent comer to biblical studies uh, in terms of its focus on reception history, um, so the reception of Exodus motifs. You know, an older generation would have maybe looked at you know Old Testament and New Testament, for example. But there's a increasing recognition that you know Israel's scriptures are already you know in dialogue with each other. Other Jewish texts are engaging with Israel's scriptures in ways that are comparable to the New Testament. You see it also in the later uh, rabbinic traditions. So yeah, there's other, other work that's been done on, say, Exodus in the New Testament. That's not a new, uh, a new thing, but this is sort of broadening it to a broader uh, purview, I suppose. And I think that focus on reception history maybe orients and helps to orient us as scholars more towards the layers of tradition. Um, so my contribution is you know, looking at the Johannine literature, but rather than just isolating a, a conversation between, say, X, the book of Exodus and the, the Gospel of John, um, to recognize there's all sorts of intervening, intervening mediary participants in that, in that conversation. And this is a, is a growing field, as is evidenced by a you know, new commentary series and the Journal of the Bible and its reception. So that's uh, some of the, uh, the framing, I suppose, for the volume. Joshua, would you explain for us the importance of the Exodus account and its variety of motifs in Jewish and Christian literature? Well, it can't, can't really understate or overstate uh, the significance of Exodus uh, for Israel's scripture and, and beyond, really. I mean, if we, if we go beyond the scriptures themselves, um, the image of the liberation of oppressed peoples has all sorts of resonance uh, in our own time that displaced peoples and all sorts of different kinds of slavery that, that happened today. And that was maybe some of the original framing of, of the volume two, some of the resonances that may have in our current context. But the Exodus, the book of Exodus, of course, is the, uh, the kind of codified account or official account or version of uh, a foundational moment in Israel's formation as a, as a people in covenant relation with God. But the motifs in the book of Exodus and Exodus motifs take us beyond uh, the book itself. Um, so you have a lots of wrestling and an engagement with and extrapolation upon uh, the themes that you know, have um, a particular formulation in the book of Exodus beyond the book of Exodus, even within Israel's scripture. So some of those big themes would be you know, God delivering his people, of course, from uh, hardship in Egypt. Um, and in doing so, revealing his own character. Uh, they're not just liberated to do their own thing, but liberated to be in covenant relationship with a God who they now know something about, you know, a God who's uh, sovereign over the gods of Egypt, who is faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. Uh, so it's, it's almost as much, if not more, about the disclosure of God than it is about his bringing his, his people out uh, of bondage. And providing for them you know, in the process. Uh, they come out plundering the Egyptians. They're fed and watered in the desert. So he's a God who, who, who follows through on this promise. He doesn't just abandon them at the edge of the, 
the Red Sea uh, or Reed Sea. Um, so some of those themes, uh, and of course, uh, we could add to that, you know, of course, making the covenant, the striking of the covenant at, at, at Sinai, where you have a legal code laid out and, and then the book culminating in the construction of uh, the place of worship where um, covenant relationship with God is going to be constantly refreshed and renewed. So those are some of the themes within, within the book. But of course, those are foundational to Israel's identity and they pop up all over uh, Israel's scriptures. Um, maybe most obviously, you know, the, the legal code in Exodus gets represented in Deuteronomy, of course. It's engaged um, throughout the prophets. You know, you, you were in covenant relation with God. You broke the covenant. Uh, so this is what you can expect based on uh, you know, the promises and blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy's account of the legal code, for example. The motif of, of, of deliverance and calling out people from from oppression. I mean, in, in a way, that is not the first time that has happened uh, in the book of Exodus. You've got, you know, Abraham being called out of Ur. And, and when he goes back to Egypt with, with Sarai because of a famine, and then Sarai is, you know, almost imprisoned uh, and only delivered because there's a plague that strikes the Egyptians. And then Abraham comes out of Egypt, you know, wealthier than he went into it. This interesting dialogue happening there between, between the Exodus account. Um, and that's going to, that, that sort of um, experience of God delivering and bringing out from Egypt in particular will be then foundational in the hopes of Israel later on when they end up in exile uh, in Babylon and can anticipate that because they're in a covenant relation with God, he is going to do something similar or analogous to what he did in bringing them out of, of Egypt. So you see this throughout the prophets, maybe especially in in the latter half of Isaiah, uh, where there's a strong expectation of a, of a new exodus or a second exodus, uh, which at that point will be a, a return uh, from exile. So uh, you have throughout the Old Testament or, or Israel scriptures, you know, Israel looking back in memory to this event. Uh, you see this in, in the Psalms, for instance, you know, Psalm 77, uh, I brought you out with a strong arm and uh, uh, reminiscing on how when they approached the sea, the waters saw you, Yahweh, and they writhed. You know, this, this recalling of an event in the past. But then in texts like, like in Isaiah, there's a looking forward. Uh, you know, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. It's an anticipation of, a, of a, a future deliverance that echoes and draws on imagery and language from, from the first Exodus. Uh, so that's um, kind of Exodus, uh, the, the deliverance aspect or deliverance motif. Well, that I mentioned also, you know, a hugely important aspect of uh, the book of Exodus is the disclosure of, of Yahweh, his revelation, and Yahweh being the name that is associated with his covenant making and revealed to Moses uh, in the burning bush account in Exodus 3. Of course, the disclosure of, of God to his people in action is fundamental to the whole of scripture. Uh, but this is a, a key foundational moment in which God reveals himself and, and reveals himself as a God who is known in and through his action in history. So when God reveals his, his name, you know, I am the Lord uh, to Moses, that is, is picked up and repeated throughout the book of Exodus um, as God follows through in his promise. So he'll say to the Israelites, 
you know, I will do this or I'll send plagues on the Egyptians, and then they will know that I am the Lord. That phrase, you know, recurs throughout the book of Exodus. It maybe culminates in the second, you know, Sinai theophany when Moses asks to see God's glory. And he says, well, you can't see my glory, but you can see, uh, I'll declare my name to you, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he declares that at the very moment that he's about to exercise mercy and grace and compassion uh, with a people who are worshiping a golden calf at the foot of the mountain. So he's not just declaring this is what I'm like, he's actually acting it out at the moment that he's giving a second chance, a rewriting of the, of the tablets that were broken. That disclosure of God as being a God who's greater than the Egyptian gods, a God who's gracious and compassionate, is picked up and repeated and recurs throughout Israel's scriptures. Uh, and some of the phrasing and the terminology is, is deliberately evoked. So, you know, the phrase, you know, gracious and compassionate, God's stealth disclosure in Exodus 34 is all over uh, Israel's scriptures. You see it in the Psalms, you see it in Nehemiah's appeal to God. Um, you know, you're a God who's gracious and compassionate. You're, you're abounding in, in love. You, you, you are you're longing to forgive, Nehemiah says. So he appeals to the character of God revealed in Exodus and anticipating a in anticipation of God acting in a way that is analogous to how he has done in the past. So that is a, a hugely, and I, I mean, I focused on Yahweh there as a, be a, a rallying point for the revelation of God. Uh, there's other ways in which that is expressed. Um, I mean, the name uh, Yahweh tied to God's other self-disclosure in Exodus 3, I am, uh, is uh, similarly picked up in Isaiah but reframed a little bit. So you know, Isaiah is depicting, or the prophet in Isaiah, say chapters 43, 45, and other places, is looking forward to God uh, inaugurating a second exodus. You have uh, God making statements, uh, the repeated statement, I am he, uh, which sets him in opposition to and in distinction from the Babylonian gods, the idols that Israel is tempted to, to worship. Um, so it's, it functions to set him apart exclusively, which is not dissimilar to the way in which God is distinguished from the Egyptian powers and deities in the book of Exodus. But it's, again, God revealing what he is like, that he is not like other gods, that he does not share his name or his glory with, with anybody else. And therefore, he warrants the exclusive allegiance of his covenant people. Uh, so those are maybe a few examples of uh, the motifs in Exodus and how they get, get played out in, within Israel's scriptures. But maybe beyond Israel's scriptures uh, in the Second Temple period and the New Testament more broadly, you have a huge emphasis on, on Exodus. Maybe just a, a little indication of that would be, you know, in Qumran, we've got 18 manuscripts of Exodus, which gives an indication of how extensively it was being studied. Um, and, you know, commentaries being written on it, uh, texts that are ex uh, expansions upon passages in, in Exodus. In Various apocryphal and pseudepigraphal books, you have different kinds of engagement with Exodus, whether it's citation or commentary, or in some cases like a rewriting. So the book of Jubilees, for instance, is a kind of a rewriting of Genesis and, and Exodus. But interestingly, the book of Jubilees is framed as occurring or being delivered almost to, to Moses on Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus uh, 20, 24, I think it is. So you have the sense that Jubilees is almost setting forth its own content as in some ways 
uh, on a par or, or harnessing the rhetorical significance of Exodus and, and God's revelation to Moses on, on the mountain uh, as a way of the harnessing some of that rhetorical power, but also uh, legitimating the, the, the people who would read and orient themselves to the content of, of the book of Jubilees. So you have different kinds of uses of, of Exodus in that, in that sort of way. Um, Josephus uh, is another example. Josephus engages and sort of retells the story of, of Exodus and reframes Moses as a kind of Hellenistic, uh, virtuous leader, uh, perhaps with some apologetic, you know, intense uh, in mind there. So that's sort of Second Temple uh, more broadly. And then, of course, it's all over the New Testament. Lots of work been done on this, uh, especially in the Gospels, you know, the ways in which Jesus is inaugurating the new Exodus that, that Isaiah is looking forward to. Um, Matthew's birth account, uh, echoing Moses' birth account in lots of ways. Um, Jesus casting out demons in Mark's gospel by the finger of God may be a, an allusion to uh, the, the Egyptians uh, over against Moses, who the plagues in, in Moses are executed by the, by the finger of God. And of course, Jesus at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the new, new covenant, which evokes and kicks forward uh, the first covenant uh, institution established in Exodus 24, when the blood is sprinkled over over the people. So it's all over uh, implicitly and explicitly, uh, the synoptic gospels, and right through to the end of the New Testament, revelations saturated with <laughs> Exodus themes. You've got plagues uh, that are largely evoking Exodus plagues, the admonition to the saints to come out of Babylon, um, an echo of Israel coming out of Egypt. So hopefully that illustrates how deeply pervasive the motifs are uh, and how significant this text is and how really so much assumes it and is built off it and is receiving and also reframing it in light of current circumstances that various authors had uh, facing them. Now, in this volume, you wrote a chapter called Revelation, Provision, and Deliverance, the Reception of Exodus in Johannine Literature. Can you give us a summary of your contribution? So uh, my contribution is um, uh, focused on the Gospel of John and, and, and the epistles. Um, the, the epistles come into it very faintly because, uh, well, they're, they're shorter, but they also don't engage nearly as explicitly with, with scripture. So the imprint of scripture is much fainter. And that maybe flags up one of the challenges that I had, um, even with the gospel of John, is he is, is thoroughly engaging with scripture and with Exodus. Um, but he tends to be more elusive in his engagement with scripture and very synthetic in his thoughts. So how do you methodologically identify where it, this is, you know, Exodus or just you know, something that's in the air that, how, how do you be precise so the way I went about my, my essay was to, to identify three really clear, or at least clear to me, points of engagement with the book of Exodus as a starting point for uh, thinking through the, the motifs, the Exodus motifs that John is engaged with. Um, so the three points of engagement that I identified, um, the first is at the end of the prologue, where uh, John exalts that you know, um, the word became flesh. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And he goes on to contrast the revelation that comes through Jesus with Moses and then concludes um, the prologue with saying, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only uh, has, has made him known. So most Johannine scholars are, are agreed there's significant engagement with Exodus 33 and 34 here, where Moses similarly asks, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. I'll just reveal my name to you, uh, which is gracious and compassionate. And gracious and compassionate. Um, grace and truth uh, are, are John's sort of grace and truth is almost certainly an evocation of, of that exposition of the name there. And the fact that John says we get to see his glory, the glory that Moses didn't get to see. So that was the first point of engagement. The second is in John 6, where you have uh, Jesus feeding narrative and then the extended discourse on, on the bread of life, uh, evoking God's feeding of his people with manna in the desert. And then the third one is uh, Jesus' crucifixion, when there's a quotation from Exodus 12 uh, that none of his bones are broken, uh, linking Jesus with the Passover uh, lamb. So I, I started with those and focused on those three clear points of engagement to avoid some of the more speculative uh, attempts that have been made to think about John in relation to Exodus. Um, just as an example of where sometimes this can go, because John can be a bit of a happy hunting ground for typology and, and illusion and, and whatnot. Um, there's one scholar in the middle of the 20th century who suggested that you know, when Jesus is crucified between two, two thieves, that's evoking the fact that Moses uh, you know, had his arms up raised you know, by a couple of friends who were holding his hands up so they could win the, win the battle. Uh, maybe, but that seemed a little bit of a, of a stretch. So how do you... What are, the, what are the boundaries there? And yet, although I want to start with kind of clear points of engagement, we want to recognize that that's just the tip of the iceberg. So John is engaging with these Exodus motifs in other places in this gospel. And he's almost certainly engaging with other Exodus passages or motifs in, in his gospel. So this is not exhaustive. The other thing I tried to stress in, uh, or to draw out in my essay, uh, contributing to a a volume on the reception of Exodus motifs is the way in which um, John is engaging with Exodus in a mediated form. So those three points of engagement, uh, all three of them, I think, were likely suggested to John by prior Jesus tradition that we have in the synoptics. And almost certainly John, I think, knows Mark's gospel, for example. So Mark really stimulated some of these engagements with, with Exodus, you know, the feeding narrative, uh, the Passover, Jesus' connection with the Passover. That's already there in Mark's gospel. So John is, is moving uh, in within a tradition uh, here. And that going back to some of the things that, that Jesus himself, I think, uh, some of the dots Jesus himself connects. The, the transfiguration account in, in Mark and, and Luke also is uh, may well be a, a foundation for how John frames the end of his prologue, with we have seen his, his glory. So it's stimulated by engagement with, uh, with Mark or the, the Jesus tradition, but there's lots of indications that John is engaged directly with the text of Exodus himself. Some of the details he includes don't come from the other Gospels, um, indications that he's engaging directly uh, with Exodus. And then uh, he is engaging with Exodus in conversation with the, the interpretive tradition of Exodus that I've talked about a little bit already here. So there's an intervening interpretive tradition, and I, 
um, was struck by how Isaiah in particular, not exclusively, but Isaiah in particular seems to be a lens through which John is reading uh, Exodus. And that might be a, a two-way conversation. You might be reading Isaiah in light of Exodus and Exodus in, in light of Isaiah. I think John thinks of the whole scripture as a synthetic tapestry. It's all interrelated with each other at the center of which is Jesus for John. He's thoroughly Christological and synthetic in his thought and the basis for his synthesis is, is Christ. Um, so what you're getting then in, in John's gospel is a kind of a, a concretizing of a history of interpretation of Exodus that is now being understood in light of the Jesus event. So the, the three uh, areas that I focused on, I mentioned um, introduced briefly already. Uh, maybe I could say a little bit more about, about each of them. That'd be great. So the prologue of, of John's gospel, you have the, the glory of God uh, on display for, for John, which, um, as I mentioned, goes back to this engagement with Exodus 33 and, and 34, uh, and stimulated perhaps by transfiguration account in, in Mark um, and maybe other aspects of the gospels too. For instance, you know, in Mark's gospel and Jesus is walking on the water to his disciples. He's described as about to pass by them, which seems to evoke, um, you know, the glory of God passing by Moses when he's hiding in the cleft of the rocks. There's already this kind of engagement with that uh, theophany in the, in, the, in the gospel tradition. But John uh, just exacerbates this when he says, you know, we beheld his glory and implies pretty strongly that this is the glory that Moses couldn't see. Uh, which really underscores the significance of what we're getting in the Gospel of John. Uh, we are getting window into the very heart of God that Moses longed to see, or as Peter says, you know, angels long to look into some of this. And how is John able to to do that? Well, I think he sees a bit of uh, legitimation for this striking presentation of Jesus in Isaiah. So there's an interesting conversation between Exodus and Isaiah. Moses can't see the glory. But in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision of God sitting on a throne, and he says, I saw the Lord. Well, John, in his gospel, uh, alludes to that passage in chapter 12, and he says, well, Isaiah uh, said this because he saw Jesus' glory, and he wrote about it. Uh, So if Isaiah sees the glory that turns out to be Jesus, that gives a certain license to to, um, understand what's going on in Exodus 33 and 34. So there's a, a re-understanding of, of that passage. Um, and you see some of the, the ripples of this profound uh, engagement with, with Exodus elsewhere in the Gospel of John too. So in, in chapter 5, for example, Jesus' opponents are accused by him of never having seen God's form or heard his voice. And that's a uh, an evoking of, of the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, who didn't were terrified of the voice and uh, pleaded with Moses to go speak to God for us. Uh, Jesus exacerbates that and says, look, you, you've not even, not only have you not heard his voice, but you haven't seen his form. Um, so there's this critique of Jesus' opponents. And the reason he can say that is because they've rejected him. They don't realize what they're looking at. Um, if they had to recognized who he was then they would have heard the voice of god and seen his and seen his form and similarly when Moses, when uh, when philip in chapter 14 says to jesus show us the father and that will be enough for us that's a similar kind of question to moses request show me your glory 
and the language is actually similar to the Septuagint um, wording there. And Jesus' response, don't you know what you're seeing here in front of you? Uh, you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's the same kind of idea that we're getting in the prologue. No one has ever seen God, but actually the one and only has made him known. So what we're getting in the Gospel of John then is the ultimate divine revelation that turns out to be Jesus. And it's not clear that John thinks of uh, Jesus as necessarily a later or a sort of a separate revelatory event. But the way he sort of harnesses and evokes Exodus 33 and 34 in the prologue, maybe even suggests that Jesus in some way, unknown, unbeknownst to Moses at the time, is actually the heart of that, you know, first theophany. Um, there's, a, there's a bending of time in a way of these sort of, Moments are folded back on each other, and um, Jesus is the ultimate exposition of God's glory and of his name. Uh, so Jesus you know, concludes in his prayer, chapter 17, I have made your name known. That's what I've done. Of course, you have the I am sayings throughout John's gospel that are uh, another way of articulating this. So that's the prologue. Maybe just for sake of time, uh, I'll, I'll uh, just say a couple words about um, John's engagement with uh, the broken bones of Jesus, the Passover. So uh, Exodus 12, of course, the first Passover, the bones are not to be broken. And Jesus, uh, the bones of the lamb, the Passover lamb is to be eaten at that meal. Jesus in his crucifixion is described as uh, none of his bones being broken. This, of course, is not unique or original to, to John. You have in the, in the synoptics uh, already a, a Passover uh, meal of sorts. Uh, Jesus sitting down to the Last Supper. And interestingly, you don't have uh, the supper in John. Um, what you have are several repeated references to Passover throughout the Gospel of John, which indicates maybe that John has sort of thoroughly digested this meal and sprinkled it you know, throughout the text of his Gospel, if I can put it that way. And John is clearly engaging directly with um, Exodus. Uh, He's got the quotation of the bones not being broken that you don't have in the synoptics as a reference in Jesus' crucifixion to him being um, given um, the vinegar on, on hyssop, which is what was used to spread the blood on the doorposts and lintels back in Exodus. But as, as uh, we saw in the, um, in the prologue, his engagement with Exodus is mediated by the intervening interpretive tradition. So the wording, you know, not one of his bones will be broken. Um, is not exactly what you get in Exodus 12. It's, uh, it's actually more similar to Psalm 33, where you have uh, a very similar phrase. But in, in Psalm 33, there's no Exodus framing. So the Exodus narrative is not actually in view. So John is, is, is linguistically tied two passages together and produced something uh, new that reflects the kind of synthesis of his thought, that he's reading passages in light of each other. Uh, and his whole presentation of Jesus as the Passover lamb there's a strong suggestion there and that his bones are not broken, just like the Passover lamb uh, is not broken. Jesus' death occurs in John's gospel at the time the Passover lambs are being prepared. So that's different from the synoptics. And of course, John the Baptist points to Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you got a lamb language right in John chapter one. But the fact that he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world brings Passover lamb in, in conversation with uh, other lamb imagery, um, sacrificial lamb imagery, and probably 
uh, pointing to Isaiah 53 in particular, where you have a lamb who is slaughtered for uh, for sin to take away sin. So again, you have John reading Exodus in light of something in, in Isaiah. Uh, and the takeaway from it is that Jesus is presented as deliverance or the deliverer from slavery to sin. So Exodus ideas are, are recast in light of a deeper kind of enslavement. And Jesus is the means towards that deliverance. So he is the, the ultimate expression of God's character. Uh, he is the the manna, the bread that provides for the Israelites in the, in the wilderness for his own people uh, in, in the gospel, and then he's the deliverer from a deeper kind of enslavement to the enslavement you get in the book of Exodus. Now, before letting you go, Joshua, what's on the horizon for you in terms of writing? Yeah, well, um, immediately on the horizon is uh, baby number two being born. So that puts other, uh, my wife and I are expecting our second, so that puts other writing projects a little bit uh, more distant on, on the horizon. But I'm working on um, a, uh, an edited volume uh, that's subtitled The Formative Power of Scripture. It's a collection of essays um, by various scholars reflecting on the scholarly vocation of biblical um, studies for life. Uh, so for the field of biblical scholarship, for others, for the church, uh, for the world. So I'm really excited about, about that. Um, we haven't quite settled on the, uh, on the title yet, but um, sort of rallied around that theme of, of life. And then um, doing some work on the uh, vocalization of Scripture in John. So when Scripture is spoken by characters within uh, the narrative, um, the ways in which John seems to be using that to disciple his readers, uh, to themselves become uh, those who inhabit the narrative and the voice of, of Scripture. That's kind of early stages of that. Um, I presented a paper in conference last month on it and, and seeing where, where that's going to go. So those are a couple of things that are a couple irons in the fire there. Joshua, thank you for joining us. It's been great hearing about these Exodus motifs in Jewish and Christian literature. All the best. Thank you for having me. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.